the stories of the ones who came before. What stories will be told of us when we are here no more? We commit ourselves to action. It brings meaning to our days. It's time to live our praise. Welcome to the Jewish Diaspora, a podcast where we will discuss the ins and outs of Jewish history, politics, and culture from a diasporist perspective. My name is Ben Yanowitz. Hi, I'm Zach Smarin. And we will be the hosts of this podcast, who in the future will be joined by guests from a variety of Jewish organizations and background, and maybe some from non-Jewish organizations and backgrounds. So before we get started, Zach, what exactly is diasporism? Or what do we mean by diasporism? Well... We were thinking about this uh, for, for quite a little bit to particularly find the best kind of uh, definition that, that we might. Uh, and it's always difficult with uh, with definitions, uh, with working definitions, uh, to find specifically what we what we want to say and uh, to have it all encompassing. But for the for the purposes just of the first uh, episode, I'm sure that we'll go into this a lot in the future. Diasporism, which is the way that I pronounce it, is the belief that diaspora is not just a state from which one needs to ascend, but one in which cultural and communal fulfillment can be achieved to its highest perceptible level. And it stands in that in opposition to the ethno-nationalist conception of self-determination that allocates one piece of land to one uh, national or ethnic group. And diasporism supports other more diverse forms of communal self-management around the world and across different communities as well. Wow, thank you. That's a really beautiful way to put it. Definitely had no role in writing that out as well. <laughs> Not at all. The the, the authors were, were so beautiful in coming up with this concept, uh, with articulating it in this way. <laughs> Absolutely. I really think it's one of those things that is really difficult to really define, especially because it's a term that's just really starting to be used increasingly so. But this is definitely a term that we will come back to. I mean, the name of the podcast is The Jewish Diaspora. So I assume down the line, we will be doing perhaps a whole episode, perhaps multiple whole episodes on this concept of diasporism. So I'm a Jewish socialist historian who's currently studying at the University of York. I'm originally from California, did my undergrad at Colgate University, and currently continuing my studies of Jewish and socialist and internationalist history, really trying to learn the lessons of labor history and anti-colonial struggles to really learn how to build a better world and bring about Jewish liberation alongside liberation of all peoples. And for the sake of diversity, I also am a Jewish socialist historian uh, doing a master's uh, at the University of Oxford, a little bit further down south. And uh, despite this uh, accent, which will probably confound uh, most of the listeners, uh, I am actually from Poland, albeit in somewhat of a complicated fashion, but uh, very much interested in a lot of the same things that Ben has described. Yeah, so we really came together on some of the most unexpected of places, Twitter. I love Twitter. About four or five months ago in the tail end of 2022. And yeah, we really decided that we wanted to get involved in organizing work because we see Jewish politics as something that is increasingly relevant, especially as non-Brits here in the UK. We can really feel the pressures of some of the last 
few years of Jewish politics that have had a very huge repercussion in this country. Um, and because of that, we really felt called to really take part and organize within our broader community. As we'll discuss later, we organized for the UJS conference. But now we're starting this podcast so that we can take advantage of the contacts we have and talk to them and work through a lot of ideas for a wider audience. There are many ways in which uh, one can be uh... Uh, on the Jewish left and be involved in politics. Uh, a lot of the organizing that has been done in recent years, is, well, recent decades, one might even say, has been done specifically on issues of Israel-Palestine, whether it's opposing the occupation, whether it's opposing apartheid, whether it's posing challenging questions regarding the nature of Jewish identity and Zionism, that, that has very much taken center stage. And I don't think neither me or you are interested in um, downplaying that aspect of politics. I think it certainly is uh, very important, especially uh, considering the recent events and the, and the cabinet in Israel and the government that currently exists there. I think that's something that uh, attracts a lot of attention that is not uh, disconnected uh, from those factors uh, at all, to be honest. Is questions rather relating to Jewish cultural and communal existence wherever Jewish communities may live. Yeah, and I really wanted to speak on this as well, because I've grown up in a Reformed Jewish communities. I grew up going to synagogue, not that often, you know, every couple of weeks we'd go to Shabbat. Grew up going to Jewish summer camps as a camper when I was younger, but also more recently as a counselor and a Rosh, as a unit head. And during my time, really began to see a monumental shift in the youth on our politics towards Israel-Palestine towards our Jewish identity, so much so that I had a camper literally say to me that she could feel a divide between her generation and her parents' generation on this issue, which this was several years ago, but it really began to help me feel that there is a movement that is going on. It's a generational shift, but it's something that Jews have really fought for for generations. It's something that isn't new at all, but it's also something that is seeming to come back into vogue in this moment. And I think that's really saying a lot about the moment we're in, but also just about the way that we all have really come to understand our Jewish identities as something that is so personal and especially divergent with that of the Israelis, which ends up being a national identity that really loses a lot of that spiritual and cultural element in favor of a national understanding of Jewish self as well as Jewish collective which is ultimately very harmful for those of us in the diaspora. Yeah, and and you're not as north as the Bay Area, are you? I'm from the Santa Cruz area, just a little south. Right, but I remember reading somewhere, oh, it might have actually been even uh, Rashid Khalidi in the Hundred Years' War of Palestine, about talking about recent events, uh, saying that quarter of Jews in the Bay Area under 40 now believe that Israel is an apartheid state. I might be completely butchering that, but there is a significant move, especially in the United States. Yeah. And a, and a division, certainly at the political level, against very strong bipartisan support uh, for Israel, for both the Democratic and the Republican parties. I come from a completely different background because the uh, the kind of developments of you know, the youth movements, religious movements, and great communal organizations, that's not the case in Poland, in, in where I grew up. I was the first person in my reformed community in Krakow to have a bar mitzvah 
since, well, it depends on who you ask, but in a very long time, at least in the last few decades. So growing up, Jewish identity wasn't something generated from perspectives of my community, but rather something that happened to me through my family, most, mostly my uh, my father. My mother is not Jewish. And so very much uh, it has, uh, alongside other involvements in my life with uh, left-wing politics from quite an early age, it has been the case that uh, very much still connecting your Jewish identity to politics was uh, was was important for me. Yeah, absolutely. For me, it was much more communal. Like, absolutely, I think my family played a big role. I mean, my family are lifelong Democrats, which, I mean, I've since moved significantly to the left as well as I've moved my mother and my family to the left as well by really drawing on that rich Jewish socialist history. But a lot of my politics, as well as my Jewish identity, have been very much informed by my relationships to other Jews at camp. That's been a really big impact on me. One of the people that I have worked with and organized with, who currently is involved with If Not Now, was a mentor to me uh, at camp when I tried to do some organizing work around Israel-Palestine and the way our camp approaches education around Israel-Palestine. And that was a very interesting fight, given that um, it's really hard to organize in a summer camp setting. Just going to say that. But ultimately, it was really meaningful because I really started to realize that there really are these organic left-wing Jewish communities that are really based in a communal sense of shared belonging that's really, really beautiful. And to me, it's really helped inform the way I understand my own Jewish identity in a way that is deeply connected to politics of social justice and to kun olam, fixing the world. It's something that I think really is separate from the, the Judaism that's being pushed in Israel today, which is really a narrow, dogmatic orthodoxy that is increasingly becoming a reason not to find solidarity with peoples that are marginalized and oppressed, but to actually marginalize and oppress people. That's one of the core reasons why that I, we would like to start this podcast, because we really want to demonstrate this underground, this radical tendency within Judaism that is intrinsic, it's intuitive, it's a part of the diaspora Jewish identity. And it's something that's been really increasingly lost within Israel-Palestine. That's something that we really have to wrestle with. And we really believe that this podcast can be one of many, hopefully, platforms that enables us to really start to explore these ideas with people from all the different organizations that make up the Jewish left across the diaspora. We've, uh, we'll probably be able to come back to the summer camp setting a little bit later, um, given our, our organizing. I think it's interesting as well to mention as part of the radical tendency. In some sectors of the Jewish left, or even talking about individuals that would describe themselves as Jewish leftists, I'd say that there are sometimes perspectives that verge a little bit into contrarianism, which treat Jewish identity very much something that they cherish, of course, but also one that veers into a rejection of communal establishments or rejection of mainstream communal spaces. And whilst I can completely understand that, and I have uh, certain experiences myself, which would which which render me very sympathetic to that, I think we will both agree that it is only through engaging with our voices that we are able to note our presence and potentially expand the number of people and movements who are who are interested in this kind of change. Yeah, one hundred percent. I think the U.S. is a really good example to look at what really happens when you do have a Jewish left that really fails to actually engage with the mainstream Jewish organization. Because in the US, you have If Not Now, you have Jewish Voice for Peace, you have Jews for Racial and Economic Justice, 
You have other smaller Jewish left-wing organizations across the country. But for the most part, these organizations are protest movements. They aren't really tied to actual Jewish communal institutions. They may try to become some form of Jewish social institution or organization, but they don't really engage as Jews in the Jewish community. And if they do, it's pretty narrowly focused on Israel-Palestine or combating anti-Semitism, which, of course, is very critical and a big part of Jewish organizing and Jewish politics. But if that becomes our entire focus, I think we really do lose something because Judaism and Jewish culture and Jewish life has a lot to offer the world beyond just trying to fix the problems we've had to deal with. And if we really want to actually put forward a Jewish alternative, a Jewish future platform, one might say, then... Um, Whoa, whoa, that was very, very (laughs) subtle, very subtle from my co-host there. Um, But uh, if we do want that, (laughs) then we do need to think beyond just Israel-Palestine and combating anti-Semitism, and of course, critically engage with these, but also go beyond that and really put forward a vision, an alternative to what Jewish life might look like. Um, And that, I think, can really be best understood as going beyond just the Zionism versus anti-Zionism paradigm, which can be very problematic as anti-Zionism is often conflated with anti-Semitism, and therefore it's Zionism and Judaism are understood as one of the same, to a Zionism versus diasporism paradigm. And that is a paradigm that recognizes that both sides of this coin are fundamentally Jewish. And this is something that as Jews, we have to wrestle with. We really can't just ignore diasporism as something that is anti-Semitic, because it's not. It's literally rooted in our own condition as Jews across the diaspora. And it's something that I think really can help detoxify Jewish politics, which is something that here in Britain is incredibly toxic at times. Absolutely. <laughs> y- yes. Um, you have experience with, um, with uh, if not now, I to a smaller extent have some experience with uh, Na'amad. Uh, certainly to a large extent in, uh, inspired by the work of, uh, if not now. Uh, and while I do think that Naamad is, uh, is a good organization and it does very, uh, it pushes very noble um, causes, it does have some problems that are being sorted out that have been worked on in, in recent months. And I, as much as I would be interested in involving myself uh, in that individually, uh, you know, you can't invest yourself in everything. My my best hope is that Naamod is able to uh, come out of its uh, of its of its difficult times at, at this point. I feel that you know we are in broad agreement about uh, a lot of these issues, apart from you know covering our bases and getting to know each other through um, as as you mentioned the great platform of Twitter. But I'll briefly mention that as well. That I don't know if it was you who followed me or I who followed you. It's your description and profile. I thought, okay, that's an interesting person to have some potential contact. Maybe I should write to them. And then you did that before me. So I didn't come across as the, you know, the Twitter rando sliding into someone else's DMs. Um, that was me. That was that was definitely you. Uh, but apart from apart from that, and apart from the two of us, because although there are two of us today on the podcast, there are more that are involved in the general process. So what uh, what can we say about that? Yeah, so... I mean, I like to joke that you took my profile seriously, which includes the line, let's restart the Jewish labor bund or something along that line, yes, um, which, yes, which is something I'm really strongly passionate about because the bund is something that 
was actually it came out as the exact same year as modern political Zionism, 1897. The Bund came together essentially as the antithesis of Zionism. It was diasporist, it was non or even anti-Zionist, secular Jewish socialism. It's something that has been written out of the mainstream histories intentionally so but was incredibly influential within Jewish spaces during those 30, 40 years between 1900 and the founding of Israel. I guess that's 48 years. But of course, it was crushed for obvious reasons, including the Holocaust, which is very tragic, but also the triumph of Zionism, which really gave reason to ultimately ignore Bundism as a relevant factor within Jewish life. And I think we really came together because we fully believe in the persisting relevance of Bundism. It's something that can offer a lot. It actually engages with the question of actually confronting anti-Semitism without just saying, let's just escape and create a state of our own. The persistent relevance of Bundism is the name of, a, of an article published in the link you've seen of the only pre-1939 Bund organization that still exists, uh, all the way in Melbourne, Victoria. They will definitely be hearing this, so uh, I think this is a good moment to say hi uh, to everyone. And also uh, connected to the fact that both of us have written an article uh, about our experiences at a UJS conference, which we will be getting into uh, at a later point, which uh, covers many of the same ideas uh, that we'll be talking about today, although they will be different. Uh, if you will be listening to the podcast, uh, we definitely recommend uh, that you will read the article uh, and vice versa. And yes, regarding regarding the Bund, I mean, certainly someone, you know, growing up in Poland in very, very different environment, of course, but uh, in recent years, experiencing forms of uh, Jewish cultural and communal revival after everything that has happened. It certainly has been interesting to read about, first of all, developments that took place in the areas that you now lived in to, to a large extent, but also to a lot of the messages. The idea of living in the diaspora being an act within itself, rather than simply something that is the case because your forefathers lived here, but rather a conscious decision that you make and has actual political uh, and practical implications. The idea of nurturing a Jewish culture, the Bund specifically associated with uh, with Yiddish culture, but also I think something that uh, definitely deserves expanding. I think that the term of Ashka normativity has certainly uh, had an increased uh, interest in, in recent years and not connecting it specifically to um, the culture based around one language, one flag, one symbol. All of this is something that uh, that the Bund would have been against, but also something that is of relevance today, as well as forms of uh, of labor solidarity across communities. The fact that we are all uh, ultimately, as as human beings, connected by many different issues, and as uh, as people who have to work to survive, uh, that we can find many areas of connection. Uh, these are all aspects that are. Uh, relevant to Jewish communities, almost no matter how big or small they might be, and ones that uh, resonate all across the world. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that really sticks to me from my reading about the Bund was this rejection of having any one center of Jewish life, this idea that Jewish life is something that must be able to exist wherever we live. The quote, wherever we live, that's our homeland, is often used and associated with the Bund. And I think it really resonates with me because 
as someone that grew up in California, which is an incredibly beautiful place, I feel completely at home on that land. And it may be land that was colonized by Americans or the U.S. Americans, but it's also something that really helps me think about the concept of indigeneity in a way that goes deeper than this idea that, oh, Jews are indigenous to Israel. So that's our land and we have a right to have a Jewish ethnostate there. Instead, it's like, what does indigeneity even mean? Like, I can be a Jew and have a beautiful relationship to the land that I grew up on, but it's not at all an exclusive right to say, this is my home. It's something that's much more about my own personal lived experience on that land and the way that I understand my place in the world. And it's something that I think is really incredibly beautiful because it really embraces the mosaic of different communities across the world. And this is both Jewish, but also non-Jewish in recognizing all of our interdependence. And especially in the era of climate change, all of our interreliance on each other, but also on that land, on this planet that we are all bound to in a way that I think can be very spiritual, but also can be rooted in this legacy of the bun. Certainly. I mean, the, the historical nitpicker among me will say that the idea of Bundists and the ideas of homeland is very much something that evolved uh, across the time that the Bund came into existence, certainly in its early periods. It very much viewed uh, Yiddish land or you know forms of Jewish communities in Eastern Europe as the centre of at least their identity. And the idea of, uh, you know, Bundist uh, organizations happening or taking, you know, inequality organizing all over the world was something that was a development after the Second World War. Uh, just to push, you know, to follow on with that, something that often comes up with discussions of, you know, living in Poland and being Jewish today is the idea of how can this be possible? You know, Poland, especially to Jewish people, is very much associated with the Holocaust and with death and with misery. And with old family ties, but ones that are in no way current, ones that are connected by going to Auschwitz or going to the cemetery from the local shtetl where your family came from. And all of that is absolutely true. There is no possibility of denying that reality living in Poland. In fact, it surrounds you all the time in a way that perhaps is even greater than if you don't live there and you only identify the Holocaust with perhaps a concentration camp, because every aspect of Jewish identity in communities in Jewish Poland was affected by the Holocaust. But nevertheless, at least speaking from personal experiences and the experiences of many, uh, many other people, it is where I grew up. It is where I affiliate. It is where I feel at home. It's where my family is from. It's where I had friendships. It's where I went to school. It's where I went to synagogue. It's the language that I speak. It's where I have friends. It also has much uh, lower housing prices than the UK, incidentally. But that, so it is. It is a place that is living, and certainly you've seen the developments that have taken place uh, since uh, uh, since the end of the dictatorship in 1989 and the establishment of liberal democracy. It certainly has seen that possibility. And I think the idea of living there resonates with communities that have suffered, not only Jewish communities, but all communities that have suffered persecution all over the world. The idea that we can't just go somewhere else and that will fix our issues, but that we have to, that this is where we belong, that we won't be intimidated into leaving. That's only an impulse that can be sympathized with. Yeah, absolutely. I think that was really well said. I think it's very also brings the point home that like if we want to actually combat anti-Semitism, 
we have to combat anti-Semitism. Like you look at the Polish government today and there's a load of anti-Semitism as well as homophobia and all different sorts of bigotry. And it's not something that can be fought simply by having an ethno state of our own. In fact, having a Jewish ethno state ends up like supporting the Polish Catholic right or the Hungarian right that ends up keep repeating George Soros as if that's not an anti-Semitic dog whistle. So with that, I think we should go on to our platform. So we briefly mentioned it before as a little uh, hint with the notion of a Jewish future platform. So the Jewish future platform was the culmination of our organizing work that we put in preceding the UJS conference. And this was a platform that we developed collaboratively between Zach and I, but also with some other Jewish students, as well as in dialogue with other representatives from Jewish organizations across the UK, but also elsewhere across the diaspora. And this was something that we really saw as re-articulating the values of the Bund for the very different social, political, cultural reality of 21st century Jewish life. And this resulted in us producing a series of eight motions, which sought to lay out an alternative vision for Jewish politics, which centers life in the diaspora. In doing this, we reimagined the role an institution like UJS could play in addressing these shortfalls and failings. So, in no particular order, the first of our motions was to build connections with Jewish diaspora organizations. Access to Jewish culture in all its diversity. Access to Jewish studies and Jewish academic engagement. Inclusivity mechanisms for Jewish student communal spaces. Combat anti-Semitism by fixing the flaws of the IHRA definition. Solidarity with striking academic workers. Non-cooperation with Israeli state authorities opposing UJS values. Human rights-based approach to Israel-Palestine. That was a very dramatic reading. (laughs) So as you can see, um, (laughs) these motions are very much designed for UJS. These are something that we were very much thinking for the particular context. However, we also tried to expand the scope of Jewish politics in a holistic and liberatory way. But it's also not something that we saw as like, we're just creating this, we want this to pass, and that'll be that. Because we knew that would be unrealistic. It's more of something we saw as part of a process that really enables us to engage with the Jewish community more broadly. We saw this as a way to be able to take advantage of their very flawed, as we'll discuss, internal democracy in order to actually engage with the broader Jewish student community across the UK. And to an extent, we did achieve that. And Ireland, shouldn't forget. And also UJS, for those not introduced to um, that one hell of an organization, is the Union of Jewish Students, which is an affiliate of the European Union of Jewish Students which is an affiliate of the World Union of Jewish Students. And there's a lot of Jewish student unions in this equation. Yeah, so for any listeners in the US, that's essentially Hillel, if Hillel actually had any form of democratic procedures within it. So essentially, we took advantage of the slight democratic openings within the Jewish student unions that exist here in the UK and Ireland, and essentially decided that this was a way that we can engage with the Jewish community by organizing both inside and outside mainstream communal institutions. And it is. We fully believe that it is something that needs to be pursued more. Um, And it's something that we really encourage all Jewish students, not just students, all Jews across the diaspora to engage in. Something that we really need to do if we want to actually achieve a better world. Like to go back to If Not Now, If Not Now 
says that their mission statement is to lead our community to reject apartheid, oppose the U.S. government's blank check to Israel, and demand equality, justice, and a thriving future for all Palestinians and Israelis. And that's something that is only really possible if instead of just taking an anti-Zionist position, we actually put forward an alternative vision. And this is something that we were trying to take a step to achieve. We really see this podcast as coming out of this organizing process and providing this space that can hopefully provide conversations and discussions that can help us flesh out what a positive diasporous vision is so that we as a Jewish left can ultimately lead our communities to reject Israeli apartheid and go beyond that, like reimagine what Jewish life could look like and really build vibrant, beautiful Jewish communities that are self-determining and really speak for themselves without fear. I think that, yes, in terms of Naamod in many ways is similar to, um, to, if not now, in terms of its organizing specifically to remove support from the British Jewish community for Israel's occupation. Uh, it views that as a target to change. I think that it is important to use those possibilities, uh, limited though they may be. Because if we are, you know, as many um, Jewish students are apathetic to organizing, apathetic is moralizing, unwilling to organize within mainstream Jewish communal spaces, that definitely makes it much, much easier for our voices to be erased. Even on a very interpersonal level, the fact that you are someone who goes to your local Friday night dinner for example, the fact that your face is recognized, the fact that you talk to people, that you're able to say a little bit about yourself, that humanizes you uh, in a way that, for example, writing a statement that then will be read inside the community, you're not able to present your perspectives uh, in person, of course, and you're not humanized. And the same goes with uh, whether you're doing this at a local, a national or transnational level. Uh, so that's something that very much was of importance to us uh, was to be able to, not for the sake of, you know, changing any sort of organizing or, you know, institutional bases of our mainstream communal institutions, because that's something that cannot be accomplished by a bunch of students within one conference cycle. That's something that needs to be organized, but it needs to start from somewhere and at least in some capacity, interested in uh, in that organizing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's really important to recognize that sometimes it can be very difficult to go into these spaces and be openly a non-Zionist or an anti-Zionist Jew. And I, I've experienced that myself. I know Zach has also felt this, as we'll probably talk about in our next episode. Uh, we felt this in the UJS conference. But one thing that I think is really clear is that if we really can put forward and create an, a vision, a diasporist understanding of Jewish life that can take up a positive ideological view of Jewish life beyond Zionism, I think it would be a lot easier to enter these spaces because people can have a point of reference and you don't have to just be like on the outside and just feeling not really welcome. Because I think ultimately that's what it comes down to, where Jewish spaces are only good to be in if you actually feel welcome and a sense of belonging. And too often, the question of Zionism ends up making us not feel welcome in our own, in spaces that are supposed to be our own. And definitely much, much love to all 
students who have felt for these or everyone who has felt marginalized uh, in their community um, sometimes it can feel like like you are alone that you're struggling against a system that rejects you and you either stubbornly resist and risk further marginalization or even abuse or you give up and there's nothing uh, moralizing in me saying that uh, that you give up or you decide to get involved that's a very personal decision uh, and one that only an individual can decide uh, on getting involved you need to know how well you can sustain yourself and the most important thing in any kind of organizing is to do no harm and of course that also includes yourself it can feel tiring it can feel frustrating but ultimately if we not only want to fight to have our own you know bunker no but we want to fight you know for 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 the world we want to fight for for liberation then at least some of us need to be ready for this kind of involvement 100% and really that feeling of unwelcomeness is precisely why we're creating this podcast because we really believe that in the modern world where media has taken so many different forms and our relationships to each other and communities have really taken forms that they've never taken in all of human history a place like this a virtual place that you might be listening from wherever all across the world is a way that can actually provide that sense of belonging and that sense of not being alone in this struggle in a way that i think that can actually help us come together both in our own different jewish spaces whether they be left wing jewish spaces or mainstream jewish spaces and to really think through these ideas because that's what we'd like to do on this podcast we would really like to continue hosting this podcast in order to bring people from different jewish organizations and different jewish backgrounds and to really be able to talk through just what it means to be a jew in the diaspora in a time that is just so so grim just so grim perhaps this would be a uh, or what do you think uh, about uh, sending all of our listeners without exception a big virtual hug the biggest here we go 3 2 1 and that's just from us here at the jewish diaspora <laughs> caring so deeply genuinely for every single person that takes the time to listen to this because we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the sense of community that we felt with each other and the fact that we know jewish diasporism is one way that we can find that sense of community wherever we are sure well uh, that's it for this time thank you very much to all of our listeners who have joined us on this uh, on the beginning of this journey yeah and we'd really love to thank dan nichols who let us use his rendition of elaine lisha bayah which you heard a clip of at the beginning as our intro song you really appreciate it dan you've meant a lot to me as a musician and my jewish experience but it's been great to be able to actually work with you dan will now play us out he's been uh, he's been waiting for about 35 minutes with his guitar in hand so we'll spare him any more waiting dan take it away it's up to us to call ourselves to task to sing what's good and true to bring about redemption It's what we were free to do. For what's the point of being here if we're not moved to change our ways? It's time to live our praise. We are carrying 
the stories of the ones who came before. What stories will be told of us when we are here no more? We commit ourselves to action. It brings meaning to our days. It's time to live our praise. It's up to us to own the vision. We are an answer to a call. It's up to us to live the words we speak for the benefit of all. It's up to us to bow down deeply. There's a broken world to raise. Elena Lishabea, it's time to live our praise. Elena Lishabea, it's time to live our praise. What? You're still here? Well, before you go, I just wanted to say a couple of things. In case you didn't understand Zach's sarcasm, Dan is not actually in our Zoom studio with us today. However, we do look forward to hosting him at some point in the not-so-distant future. Second, I wanted to apologize for the bad audio quality on my part. We're just starting this podcast as a passion project, and I haven't yet had the time to get a decent mic. Hopefully, that will change soon. Lastly, we hope to publish one episode per month. We have our second episode recorded, but there is still a lot of editing work to do. We have a few more episodes planned, but if you're interested in contributing, please reach out. At the moment, you can find us on our Jewish Future Instagram or Twitter. That is at Jewish underscore future. Although I imagine that might change soon. Until next time, wishing you peace and solidarity.